Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And uh, back in the 1800s, there lived a guy by the name of Edward Kimball. If you haven't heard of him, don't worry. You have no reason to know his name. Uh, he didn't honestly do really anything spectacular with his life. Edward Kimball was just kind of a, a normal guy. But one day, Edward Kimball walked into this shoe store. He's just gonna buy a pair of shoes. But while he was there, he decided to tell the shoe salesman about Jesus. Now that shoe salesman, his name, was Dwight L. Moody. And Dwight L. Moody had spent his entire life in the shoe business and all he wanted was to get rich. But when Edward Kimball walked into that shoe store and told Moody about Jesus, something came alive in Moody's heart. And as he became a follower of Jesus after that day, he began to realize that God had made him for something more than just chasing the dollar. And one time, Moody tells a story of a time where he was just walking down the street with one of his friends. And his friend said this, he said, Moody, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. I love that. What a line. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And so Moody spent the rest of his life saying, by God's help, I aim to be that man. And so Moody was just an average dude. He wasn't highly educated. He also was just an ordinary guy, but I love this. Moody said this one time, he said, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. That's good news for me this morning. I don't know about you guys. He says, after all, there's comparatively few people in this world who have great talents. God loves to use ordinary people. And so Moody just decided to use his ordinary life for an extraordinary God. And he took the opportunities God gave him. He began to reach out to the street kids there in Chicago. And he tried to help teach them basic life skills and remind them that Jesus loved them. And he prayed for them and he began to preach to them. And eventually God used Dwight L. Moody to share the good news of Jesus with over a hundred million people people. It's before the internet, okay? Absolutely amazing. In fact, the fingerprints of Moody's ministry are still having an impact even today. If you are in a Sunday school class, Moody's the guy who invented Sunday school. The, the fingerprints continue. In the year 1879, one time Moody was preaching and there was this cold-hearted man in the audience by the name of F.B. Meyer. But through Moody's preaching, F.B. Meyer had his eyes opened to the love of Jesus and he decided to start sharing that love. A few years later in 1893, F.B. Meyer was preaching and he influenced a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman also decided that this good news was too good to keep to himself and so he became an evangelist and tens of thousands of people came to know the Lord through the ministry of Wilbur Chapman. One of those people who was converted under Chapman's preaching was a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. And when Billy Sunday came to know Jesus in 1904, he quit his career as a professional baseball player and he became a preacher. And again, thousands of people were saved under Billy Sunday's ministry. 
In the year 1924, Billy Sunday went to Charlotte, North Carolina and led an event there and preached. And it kind of lit a fire in the hearts of some of the businessmen there in Charlotte. And these businessmen started to meet together and talk about Jesus and started to pray together and they felt a burden for their community. And so they decided to put together an event and they put together an event there for the people in Charlotte. And in 1934, they invited this guy named Mordecai Ham to come preach at their event. And so Mordecai Ham comes in 1934 to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's preaching there at that event when into the room walks a local teenager. He was tall and lanky, just the son of a local dairy farmer, just a normal kid, but that kid who came to the meeting heard the good news of Jesus and he gave his life to Christ and his name was Billy Graham. And of course, God used Billy Graham, just an ordinary average guy to share the love of Jesus with millions of people. Many of us in the room have been influenced by the ministry of Billy Graham, all because one guy named Edward Kimbrell walked into a shoe store and decided to tell that guy about Jesus. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. We're wrapping up our series today, like Morgan said, through the life of King David in the Old Testament. And we've seen that David was a man who was fully consecrated to God. In fact, God looked at David and he said, that dude right there, that is a man after my own heart. And I don't know about you, but I want God to say that when he looks at me. So we've been asking this question together. How can we be people after God's own heart? And we've seen in the life of David, he has some really great moments. He's a person of humility. He's a person of courage, a person of worship and service and prayer and forgiveness, but we've also seen that David is not a perfect guy. We've seen David give in to his lust and give in to passivity and give in to anger and fear and impatience and greed and laziness. And yet maybe the thing that makes David a man after God's own heart is that when David falls, he falls toward God and not away from God. And as a guy who falls, that's good news for me because I'm an average guy with an average amount of talent and, and I don't have a whole lot to offer the Lord And I'm still plagued by sin like all of you are. But the good news is that if we want to be people after God's own heart, it's not about the heart you have. It's about the heart you're after. It's about the heart you're after. And so my prayer is that when God looks at this church, when God looks at me, when God looks at you, he would see someone who's fully consecrated to him. Let's be people who go after his heart together. We're wrapping up this series today, looking at one of the final scenes in David's life. Our text for this morning is going to be 1 Chronicles chapters 28 and 29. 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. I hope you've been reading through the life of David on those text messages this summer. We wrapped that up this week, and I don't know about you, that was a great blessing to me, though. But as you're turning to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, I actually want to take us on a little bit of a detour through the New Testament, because Paul one time is preaching, the Apostle Paul, and he uses the life of David as a sermon illustration, and he gives this one sentence sentence summary of David's life that is really pretty good. It's kind of like an epitaph. It's basically like this is what the Apostle Paul is chiseling on David's tombstone. He says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Now that's pretty good. My hope is that someday when I'm dead and gone, they'll be able to say that about me, that Luke had served God's purpose in his own generation. I hope that they'll be able to say that about you. That's Paul's epitaph for David. So it just kind of begs the question, what will your epitaph be? What's somebody gonna chisel on your tombstone someday? Now here's some real tombstones that I saw recently. I thought you might enjoy them. Here lies John Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. 
Even death can't stop the dad jokes, right? Uh, Alan Dale Wilcox, if you're reading this, you desperately need a hobby. <laughs> I love it. Here's another one for us. Uh, Joel Cheskin, at last, a hole in one. <laughs> and he's frustrated golfers in the room this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. <laughs> we serve a God of miracles, amen. Uh, I was hoping for a pyramid. <laughs> And one more for us. Here lies Lester Moore. Four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. <laughs> That's pretty good. Now, now, I thought those were fun, but my hope is that someday when you and I are gone, they might have something a little more substantive to say about us. So let me just ask you, when your time comes, what are they gonna say about you? Will they be able to say, you know, Mary really served God's purpose in her own generation. And Jim, man, his heart, he's a man after God's own heart. And, and Susan, she was fully consecrated to God. That's, that's my prayer. In our text for the day here, 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, let me just set the scene for you. Um, it's at the end of David's life here. He's an elderly man at this point. He knows his time is coming near. And so he gets together this huge assembly, all the leaders of Israel, and he's gonna finally pass the baton to his son Solomon, who's gonna become the next king. And these are David's final instructions to his beloved son, these final instructions to his beloved people that he has led them as king for 40 years. And he's gonna charge them to serve God's purpose in their generation, in the next generation. And so if you and I want that to be said of us someday, that we serve God's purpose in our generation, David's going to give us four challenges this morning, four challenges. And here's the first one, embrace God's dream. Embrace God's dream. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, fully consecrated to him, serving his purpose in our generation, we have to embrace God's dream. First Chronicles chapter 28, starting in verse two says this, King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. Now, this is David's dream. David's dream is that he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple. It just begs the question, what's your dream? What's the thing that you wanna do for God? What's your dream for your family? What's your dream for how you wanna use your gifts? What's your dream for what you wanna leave behind when you're gone? What's, you wanna, what's your dream for how you wanna use the time and the resources that God has given you? What's your dream for the kind of impact that you wanna have on the people around you? David's dream is that he wants to build a temple. He wants to build a house for God. It sounds like a really good dream. But look what happens in verse three. David says, but God said to me, you are not, to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. So David, he has this dream. He wants to build a temple for God and God, God says no. And my guess is that some of you in the room, you have lived long enough that you know what this feels like to have a broken dream. And, and I don't know why, but we all have experienced that where we look at our lives and we're honestly a little bit disappointed by what we have done, by the things we have not been able to do, by that we're not as far along yet as we thought we would be by this point. It's just, it ain't happening. So I don't know why your dream died. Maybe it was 
physical weakness, maybe it was some kind of sickness, maybe it was financial difficulties, maybe it was just what felt like a lack of divine leading and opportunity. Maybe it was family drama, maybe it was work stuff, maybe it was just that marriage was a lot harder than you expected it to be. My question for you is, what do you do when your dream dies? Because it will sometime. So what do you do when your dream dies? When, when David's dream dies, we see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David kind of looks around and the, and the scene is that David looks around and he thinks, well, you know, I'm, I'm living in a palace. I, I have the nicest house of anybody in the country and the presence of God, the Ark and the Covenant is living in a tent. This doesn't seem right for me to live in a palace and God's presence to live in a tent. I'm gonna build God a house. And God shows up to David and he says like, bro, what are you thinking? <laughs> Like you, you think I need a house from you? David, think about it. I made every tree that you would use for wood to build the house. David, I made every stone that you would carve to try to build the foundation of the house. David, I made all the gold that you would use to decorate the house. Do you honestly think, David, that human hands could build something worthy of holding my glory? And God says, David, 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 no, 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 no. You're not gonna build me a house. David, I'm gonna build you a house. And God gives David this amazing promise here in 2 Samuel chapter seven. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. God says, he's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, so yes, David's dream dies here. He doesn't get to do what he wanted to do, but God shows up and he says, David, the reason your dream is dying is that your dream is way too small. My dream for you, David, is so much bigger. God promises David that somebody from his family is gonna sit on the throne forever. It's amazing. So what do you do when your dream dies? Even when your dream is dead, will you trust that God is still good? Will you trust that he is wise? Will you trust that God's will is the best thing that could possibly happen to you under any given circumstance? I've heard somebody say it like this before, that God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew as much as he knows. Will you believe that? Even when it seems like your dream is dead. When your dream dies, just trust him. Embrace God's dream. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. If you want to serve God's purpose in your generation, you got to empower God's people. Embrace God's dream and empower God's people. As David is having this whole conversation here at the end of his life, he is elderly, he's an old man, and yet he still has this vision, like David still has a hunger to see God do something in the world. He's not done yet. David's still got some fight in him. And I'm not trying to throw stones because I don't know anything, right? But we have all seen people get to this point where at that latter stage in their lives, it's easy to just kind of check out, sit back and say, you know what? I've paid my dues. I'm gonna let the young bucks handle it and I'm gonna enjoy my hard earned peace but what if God has something better in mind for that season of life? Um, There's a story that's told about the world-renowned scholar and theologian, Clint Eastwood. 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all. <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood's 93 years old, y'all, but like he's still going strong. He's nuts. He like does push-ups every day. He like doesn't track his birthdays or anything like that because he doesn't even want that to factor in his mind. And he's just this incredible body of work that he's had over his career. And one time somebody went up and they asked Clint Eastwood, they said, like, man, how do you do it? What is your secret? All your peers are dead and gone. And, and those of your peers that are still here have long since like stopped working and making movies. And yet you're still going strong. How do you do it? What's your secret? And Clint Eastwood, he, he said this. He said, it's simple. I get up every morning and I go out and I don't let the old man in. He said, he said, at your heart, every day, there's this door and knocking on that door is this old man. And once you let him in, he'll never leave. So I don't let the old man in. <laughs> like I'm self-aware, okay? I'm 29 years old. When I go to Walmart and buy spray paint, they still ask me for my driver's license because I can't grow a beard, right? I get it. <laughs> but even then, like, don't let the old man in. Like that stirs something in me, doesn't it? And, and, and for all of us, like old or not, this, this is the challenge for us that I know what that feels like. When I get home and I'm just tired and I'm beat, it is so easy for me to just cave in on myself and just focus on me and what I want and what I need and what I think rather than on serving and empowering the people that God has placed around me. I feel the knocking of that old man and I don't wanna let the old man in. And David here, at the end of his life, he's elderly, but he refuses to let that old man in. David looks at his son Solomon and there's fire in his eyes. And he says this, he says, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, David says, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as his sanctuary. Be strong. Do the work. Don't let the old man in. So, so when, when your dream dies, when you enter into a new phase of life, the temptation in that moment can be to cave in on yourself. When your dream dies, the temptation can be to focus so much on the pain and the regret and the loss of what you hoped would be that it can cause you to miss out on what God still wants to do. And yet David, to his great credit, he doesn't let the old man in. He doesn't sulk about what he can't do. He throws himself into what he can do. For this whole chapter, David empowers God's people. He talks on and on and on about how he put together the plans for the temple and he got all the materials ready and he got everything ready so that Solomon and the next generation could answer God's call. He empowers God's people. And candidly, like, I'm so thankful for the people who have done that for me. I know as a young guy here that I am standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before me. One of the greatest privileges of my life was the five years that Steve and I got to serve here together and that I got to, to learn from him. And what an amazing gift he has given us as a church. We, I have seen so many churches turn south in pastoral transitions. And, and you guys got to see that beautiful handoff um, from the outside, but I just wanna crack the door and let you know on the inside that during that about year and a half time that we were in these conversations about the pastoral transition, Steve and I had countless hours where it was just me and him behind closed doors. 
And yet never once, not one single time, was he even remotely controlling or passive aggressive. Not one single time was he ever anything other than my biggest cheerleader, my biggest supporter, my biggest prayer warrior. And we still talk almost every single day. Like what a gift we have been given, church, to have a legacy passed down to us of empowering God's people. And I wanna pass that on to those who come behind us. You and I right now, we get to eat the fruit off of trees that we didn't plant. So what about you? Like even when your life doesn't turn out the way that you hoped it would, even when your dream dies, maybe if you're looking around at your circumstances right now, maybe you haven't gotten to do everything that you hoped you'd get to do. You can still embrace God's dream and you can still empower God's people. We're getting to see a harvest come in today. All these people giving their lives to the Lord, a whole slew of them, and we got a whole slew more in the hours to come. And that is the fruit of people who decided they're gonna empower God's people. That's people who decided, you know what, I'm gonna take off work so that I can go be at camp with these kiddos this week. That's people saying, you know what, I I could go on that vacation, but instead I'm gonna use that money and I'm gonna give it to the work of God's kingdom because I believe in what's going on here. That's people who said, you know what, I can set aside some time to pray every day for the next generation, to pray every day for this church. So would you do that? I mean, would you empower God's people by getting in a group here, serving here, giving financially here, praying for what God is doing here to empower the next generation so that they can rise up and answer God's call on their life? If you wanna serve God's purpose in your generation, embrace God's dream, empower God's people, here's the third thing, know God's face. The greatest gift that you can give to the people around you, I mean, yeah, give money, yeah, give time, yeah, give acts of service, yeah, give prayer, yeah, give wisdom, but the best gift you can give is to pass on the knowledge of God. Verse nine here in the ESV, David says, and you, Solomon, my son, Know the God of your father. It's really simple advice. It's not all that profound. And yet David has lived long enough that he knows how hard this is and how important it is. He knows that, hey, when when you're king, I mean, you got a busy schedule. Your calendar is full and you can be running around trying to meet everybody else's need and you can become a slave to the tyranny of the urgent. We feel this, don't we? And he knows, he knows by now. He's lived long enough to see how life can just rush right by you and how you can end up skimming the surface of your days, believing in God without actually knowing him. And so David says, son, I want you to know God. Um, Diane Disney writes this cute little story about knowing her father. Diane Disney says this. She says, until I was six years old, I didn't realize what it was that my father did for a living. The news was broken to me by a playmate at school. So that night when dad came home from work and flopped into his easy chair, I approached him with awe. (laughs) Then, Then doubt crept in. He didn't look famous to me. (laughs) He looked tired. (laughs) And so I asked him the crucial question. I said, Daddy, are you Walt Disney? (laughs) Yes, honey, he replied. No, I mean, are you the Walt Disney? (laughs) Yes, honey, he said. So it's true? Daddy, can I have your autograph? It's a cute little story, isn't it? And yet my guess is that some of you are still treating God as if he's some kind of far off celebrity that maybe someday you'll get close enough to actually meet him face to face and maybe then you can get his autograph. 
But listen, God is not just some far off idea for you to believe in. He is not just a concept for you to understand. He is somebody to know. And the good news is that you can know him. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be adopted as these six just were, and you can call him Father. If you could pass on one thing to this church, to the next generation, if you could pass on one thing to your family, to the people around you, to your kids and your grandkids, I hope it would be that. Know God. Know God's face. That's the greatest way to empower them. Jesus says in John chapter 17 that eternal life is knowing God. The apostle Paul says in the New Testament that everything in life is absolutely worthless compared to knowing God's face. He says in Philippians 3, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, we want you to know God's face. Compared to that, absolutely nothing else matters. I, uh, I heard a preacher recently talking about zebras. I don't know much about zebras, but maybe you've heard before that the stripes on each individual zebra are unique, just like a human fingerprint is. No two zebras are the same, so this is kind of how you can identify them. And, and apparently when a baby zebra is born, the mama zebra will actually take her baby away from the herd for a few days to imprint and that little baby zebra, all wobbly, you know, on its skinny little legs, will spend its first few days of its life alone with its mother, imprinting, with no other zebras around, just learning the one that it came from, learning the one to whom it belongs. And that baby zebra will just be there alone. And for the first few days, that zebra will just stare at her mama noticing the angles of her stripes and the unique contrast and shades of the white against the black fur and that baby will learn its mama's scent and that baby will memorize the exact shape of her mama's nose, locking that impression deep into the baby zebra's heart. And then after a few days, once the baby zebra has learned and memorized its mama's face, then and only then is the zebra allowed to enter back into the herd and begin its life. And listen, if you've seen a herd of zebras before, like at the zoo, it looks like a bus full of referees like thrown in a blender, right? Like it's this blinding chaos of black and white stripes and it's dazzling in its confusion. And yet even running around in that utter chaos, that baby zebra, because it has imprinted and learned its mama's face, will always know that one right there. I'm hers. She, she's where I came from. She's, she's where I belong. Those, those are her stripes. And so David says, Solomon, know God's face. Linger with him. Listen to him. Learn the sound of his voice through his word. Learn his face in prayer and in worship. And when you memorize his face, when you know God, then in verse 9, David says, even in the chaos of life, when there are a thousand other things that are vying for your attention, then if you seek him, he will be found by you. We want you to know God's face. And here's the last thing. If you want to serve God's purpose in your generation, embrace God's dream, empower God's people, know God's face, and surrender God's glory. Surrender God's glory. Now, there was one particular day, I don't remember when, but in that season of pastoral transition when kind of the stuff was getting serious and the rubber was hitting the road, that it was an amazing Thing, and there was nothing wrong, but I just felt the weight of it one particular day. And I just felt overwhelmed. 
I have as much self-doubt uh, as the next guy, and so my deepest fear has always been that I'm going to take some church and, like, drive it into the ground, right? <laughs> and, and so I just felt overwhelmed by the weight of it all and didn't know if I had what it took and didn't know how it was all going to go, and I remember exactly where I was. I was walking across the parking lot to the pier, and I didn't know what to do, so I just picked up the phone, and I called my dad, and I just kind of word vomited to him and told him everything that I was thinking and feeling and I'm gonna be terrible at this and how do I know and all, all those things and I'll never forget his words to me. He paused and then he said, son, you just preach the gospel and if you do, good things will happen and when they do, you keep your hands off God's glory. That's pretty good advice. And, and David says to Solomon here, like, keep your hands off God's glory. David, he was the greatest king that anybody had ever seen at this point. David had conquered enemies. He had expanded borders. He'd strengthened the economy. He'd killed giants. I mean, David had done it all. And yet he acknowledges that none of it was due to him. Every good gift comes from God. Look at what David says here. It says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, praise be to you, Lord the God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Look how much this is about God and not about David. He says, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. And now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David doesn't take credit for anything. He keeps his hands off God's glory because David knows that every good gift in his life is just sheer grace. That everything we have, it's his. That everything we are, it's just grace. So surrender God's glory. What's your tombstone gonna say someday? I mean, if, if you wanna serve God's purpose in your generation, if you want it to be said, yes, they were a person after God's own heart, fully consecrated to him, embrace God's dream, empower God's people, know God's face, and then when good things happen because of that, surrender God's glory. And David here, even though his life was far from perfect, he does finish well. He did serve God's purpose in his generation. And God was faithful to that promise that he'd made back in 2 Samuel 7, that somebody from David's family is gonna sit on the throne forever. And so David passes the baton to his son Solomon and Solomon starts off well and he ends not so well. And Solomon passes the baton to his son Rehoboam, who's even worse and, and things just go downhill from there. They start worshiping idols and the kingdom is divided. And so yeah, David does have a long dynasty there's a family member of David on the throne for 424 years. That's not a bad legacy, but it's not eternal because the kingdom gets overthrown and the people get hauled off into exile. And so we're left asking the question, is God actually gonna keep his promise that somebody from David's family is gonna sit on the throne forever? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because hundreds of years later, coming from the family of David in the little town of David, this little town called Bethlehem, the same place where David himself was anointed as king. There was another little baby who was born, the great, 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 great grandson of David, and his name was Jesus, and he was known as the son of David. And, and we started off this whole thing by telling that story and talking about how 
You know, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And I hope you become that man. I hope you become that woman fully consecrated to him. But that statement is not quite true because we have seen one who was fully consecrated to God. Jesus came as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who said, God, not my will, but yours be done. And he embraced God's dream and he went to the cross. And in fact, in Acts chapter 13 there, where we were earlier, Paul draws a contrast between King David and King Jesus. He says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. King David and King Jesus, they both died. But King Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and he is now reigning over all things, seated at the right hand of God the Father on the throne of heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king from David's family who will reign forever, fulfilling God's promise to David. And so in light of that, Paul says, therefore, my friends, because King Jesus is alive, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you that you and I, we have not been fully consecrated to God and we have not always been people after God's own heart and we have often fallen. But as we have seen these brothers and sisters receive full and complete pardon to have their slates wiped clean, to be washed pure in the sight of God, you can receive that same forgiveness today because King Jesus is alive. And so with the prayer team is gonna be gathered around the edges of the room today with their green lanyards on toward the end of the service. And listen, if you need to come to King Jesus and say, yeah, I need to receive that forgiveness of sins, please do it. Come talk to us or fill out the baptism tab on the website. Or even if you just wanna say, hey, listen, I'm, I've just been like two degrees off and I just need, I need to be fully consecrated to God. I'm just an average person, but I wanna be a person after God's own heart. Come, come talk to us, come pray with us. And I hope you received the communion elements when you walked in. If you did, pull those out. Because every week we come to this moment to be still. We come to this moment to walk up to the cross and to just linger there for a little while and look at it, kind of like a baby zebra. <laughs> so in a moment, um, we're gonna give you some silence just to be with the Lord and you'll receive this piece of bread on your own that reminds us of Jesus's body. It was nailed to the cross so that we could be forgiven. And as we do, I want you to memorize these stripes. Some of you grew up on the King James. You might remember the prophet Isaiah who said that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. So memorize these stripes. And remember that you belong to Jesus. Let's receive it together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your servant, David, for allowing us to learn from his life, from his wins and his losses. We thank you for his words that you have preserved for us through your word that he's shown us how to repent, how to pray, 
how to come back to you. And we need to, Lord. Because you know my heart and you know how often I have not been fully consecrated to you, how often I have not been a man after your own heart. But we want to we wanna chase after your heart, Lord. We want to know you. so, Father, my prayer as we exit this series is that you would look at us and that by your Holy Spirit, day by day, you would enable us to be fully consecrated to you. We want to know your face. And so we thank you for these stripes that have healed us. We thank you for this body of your son that was nailed to the cross. We thank you for this blood, the blood that ran down Jesus' back as he was whipped ran down his forehead as they jammed the crown of thorns. The blood that spilled from his hands and his feet as he was nailed. The blood that spewed out of his side as he was pierced by the spear. And that even now as we find refuge in those stripes, as we are washed in that blood, we get to come before you as your children to call you Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in the name of your son Jesus that all God's people said, Amen. This is the blood of Christ. Hey, if you need to talk to the prayer team, come do it now. Let's stand and let's worship the one true king together. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.